When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible offers more than 150,000 audiobooks, all available for listening on your smartphone, tablet, and desktop. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash hangup. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Mike Pesca, and this is Slate Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of April 7th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll talk about the NCAA Men's Final Four. Actually, the Final Two. The Women's Final Two. If two teams are playing in the NCAA tournament, we are going to talk about them. And in the world of soccer, the possible relegation of Fulham and one of the greatest sporting slash contest events going, Monopoly, everything about Monopoly, and I'll focus the question this way, Monopoly, does it suck? I'm joined from Washington, D.C. by Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. And next to me is our guest panelist for the vacationing Josh. I will introduce the guest panelist in a second, but say, I was thinking about this, Stefan, Josh right now is spending time in the country where we 
we've spent the most time together, and that includes the USA. It's not the USA. Josh is in South Africa. Would you say that's true, Stefan? I would say that's true, Mike. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we spent a lot of we spent a lot of of emotional time together in the United right. States. No, but physically in each other's presence, we're more South African friends than we are. US friends. Yeah. Mary Pallant is a reporter for the New York Times who covers. I was looking at the things you cover. I'm going to say you cover contests. Yes. More so than sports. A lot of Iditarod stuff, and you're writing a book on Monopoly. Yes. Do you absolutely. know what the title's going to be? The Monopolists. Oh, comes nice. out in February. Buy millions of copies. You can pre-order on Amazon now. Mary has also worked as a singing ice cream server, a nanny, and an elf. <laughs> Thanks. What an illustrious introduction. That's what it all uh, comes down to, those high school jobs. <laughs> Since, wait, you were an elf in high school? No, it's even weirder than that. My dad at one point, um, who's actually, uh, he, he's retired now, but among other things was in radio, but also had worked oh, as a Santa. So one of the Santa. hazards of being the child of a Santa is you get enlisted, perhaps involuntarily, as an elf. Yeah. As long as you weren't dressing up as an elf while you were nannying. <laughs> no, cool. no, no, Scared away. Did you have an elf name like Crumpet or like Sedaris had? No, 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 I wish. I mean, that's the problem is once Sedaris writes about anything, like yeah. the bar is so high. Yeah. So my elf career, there will be no Sunday review piece on that. I yeah. just, that, that is not a creative impulse, I feel. But. There's, yeah. al- there's always ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> there is always ice cream. Oh, I could eat it for the rest of my life. <laughs> anyway. Yes. This is the, if your dad's a Santa, they make you be an elf. That is true. Like we saw that documentary on mascots and Bongo, the Milwaukee Buck, made his kids be little bucks. Well, anyway, speaking of basketball, but the amateur kind, since 1985, two teams seated seven or under have made the finals. In all those years combined, this year, 2014, two teams seated seven and under have made the finals. This is a little bit of an asterisky thing to make that stat sound impressive. I had to lie and kind of imply that a seven seed has ever made the finals. That's not happened before UConn did it this year, and uh, Kentucky is the eight seed in question, although they were the preseason number one seed. couple of great games Saturday. Stefan, take it where you will. They were great games on Saturday. Very, very, very exciting games. Um, let's talk about the seeding business. Let mm-hmm. us talk about the fact that we have an eight seed and a seven seed, that would add up to 15. That by four is the highest combined seed in a final. 2011, UConn and Butler, three and eight were the previous record holders there. And let's look at the reasons why Ken Palm and 538 and all of our analytical friends that maybe this sort of stuff doesn't matter quite as much as we'd like it to matter when it comes to actually playing the games, especially with a team like Kentucky. We kind of forget sometimes that college teams, unlike professional teams, are not molded as tightly because they are A, children, B, the numbers of freshmen, particularly on Kentucky, mean that there is vast areas for improvement. There's room for improvement over the course of the season. So this is a case where small sample size, the more recent games, maybe has a lot more to do with why these teams are in the finals than larger sample size of the entire season or the past two or three years. Right. If you look at, you know, these freshmen on Kentucky, the sixth games in the tournament, it'll be six uh, tonight. That's like 15, 16 percent of their entire college. Well, we try not to call it careers, but I know what you're saying. I mean, Mary, does that do you want the seeds to be right or do you want the lowest seeds possible to advance the Cinderella, um, the Cinderella? Well, complex? I'm so glad with how it's worked out, because I think at the women's tournament, you have the opposite, right? You have these two yes. undefeated terms. You have like that, just like the Beyonce teams, right? That just like rocked it all the way through completely clean. And so it's a very high stakes game in a different way. And then on the men's side, you have the battle of the underdogs. And I've been fascinated with this um, March Madness because the math thing has been so at the forefront. I and others wrote about it. 
You know, you guys have talked about Nate Silver and others, and we're obsessed with predictive results. And I, I love math as much as the next person, but I also think like anything, there's limitations to it. So I think it's fantastic that this tournament has worked out with two totally different competitions, but also busted a lot of brackets, mine included. And you have a battle where, you know, you have these two teams that they weren't my picks. They weren't President Obama's. They weren't a lot of people's. So I think it's actually great how it's worked out. Right. Although if you do put a ring on it, that is an NCAA violation. <laughs> yeah, I don't care about, uh, you know, my question to you maybe uh, indicated where I stand. I, I don't care that ones win. In the, on the one hand, we want the tournament to be logical. On the other hand, even Ken Palm will say just because we have these teams in the tournament doesn't mean his shit doesn't work, right? It just means that in a six-game series and all the stuff we were talking about, freshmen will rise. And it also means that there's great variation. If you look at, you know, the key stat of this tournament, I think, is Aaron Harrison's three-point percentage, right, right. which during the regular season was 30.6, and the postseason, including the uh, SEC tournament, is he's 23 for 45. So he's shooting over 50%, and he was a very huge one-for-one one in that game against Wisconsin. And, you know, the guarding philosophy of, I guess, it was Gasser, he hit the shot over. He was saying, quite logically, I thought at the time, well, I'm going to take the shot from there, fine. I mean, that that's... Bo Ryan, I think, would not rather have an offensive possession do anything other than getting Aaron Harrison that shot from 23 feet away. Bo Ryan would say, I will sign up for that as a chance to win the... Na- to go and play in the national championship game every game, and the kid hits the shot. So, the kid hits the shot, and all of a sudden Ken Palm is wrong. You know, that's not how it works. Right, and I think that prior to this, I talked to a lot of mathematicians and people with big brains and degrees about their models and their algorithms and what they were doing and, you know, Buffett's throwing this money out there, all this and that and the other. And one of them was walking me through his um, formula and how he, you know, figured this out. And then I was like, well, what's this? And I pointed at this one thing and he goes, oh, well, that's the unpredictability of sport. And I was like, <laughs> okay, great. So that's your model, right? That's uh, So that's why we all watch is like, even if you are... <laughs> As bulletproof as you think you can be, there's still this built-in thing, which yeah. is like what you're talking about, that oh, anything can happen. So yeah. at the end of the day, that's kind of how it works out. It's like having or not uh, amending <laughs> everything that you say predictably. Things work except when they don't. Yeah, or not. <laughs> right, this, yeah. Built, this built-in thing called reality. Right, right. You know, where Aaron Harrison isn't just one for one. He's three for three with basically no time left on the clock and his team about to be eliminated or be forced to overtime in NCAA tournament games. Yeah. And although the first two of those shots weren't like necessarily terrible shots. I mean, terrible choices to make the shot. But yeah, he had to do it. Now, if you want to talk about... As uh, Mary there indicated, so if it's the thing we love is logic uh, holding forth, and it might not be logic in the women's tournament, it might just be, and I think this is the case, that Notre Dame and Connecticut are just so much better than everyone else. So it's kind of been a bifurcated tournament. There are two teams that never lose and never really come close to losing. And there's a whole bunch of other teams that could do exciting things and, you know, in the games to get to the Final Four, the, it was Maryland versus Louisville, right? And that was a pretty good game. But take what you can. And from that, here we are in the finals, the only game that everyone wanted to see. And I guess you'd have to favor Connecticut just because of injuries on Notre Dame. But good thing or bad thing, do you think, that we have the juggernauts meet and no one else uh, really has a chance to overthrow them? I always would like to see the women's tournament get more press and more attention than it does. So I think it's partially a reflection of that. And last year you had um, so many different storylines. So 
It's good and bad. I mean, I think, which is a lame answer. It's like when I, I was, I can't remember which stats blog it was said, oh, the, the outcome is 50 50. And it's like, it's, it reminds me of when Academy Award nominees are like, my chances are one in five. And it's like, what does that, what does any of that get you? So I think it's given what happened in the men's tournament and how bonkers some elements of that turned out. I think as a viewer, it's good. But for the development of the sport, I think that, you know, you want, you want there to be more upsets. You want it to be a little bit more dynamic. They're 76 and 0. 76 right. and 0, these it's teams incredible. are. It's incredible. And it does say something less about the sort of the parity in women's basketball than the dominance in recruiting and how Absolutely. a couple of coaches and a couple of schools can become so far ahead of even their closest rivals. And we're talking about Stanford and Louisville in the last few years, thanks to Shoni Schimmel, who was spectacular during this tournament. She had a great game in the in the quarterfinal, a little around at the beginning, but then just poured it on at the end. I can't wait to watch her play professional basketball. But those programs have all now looked like they are second tier compared to Connecticut. Even Tennessee, which hasn't made a Final Four in something like six years, has taken a backseat since the illness to Pat Summit. So what do you get? You get Gino Ariema, who's a total character, who wants to sort of stir it, and the coach of Notre Dame, Muffet McGraw, with the great first name, nickname, <laughs> unfortunately. But Muffet, so they're trying to sort of stir it up and have a little shit talking and create a real rivalry where maybe one doesn't exist because the sport is so bifurcated. But yeah, this is a weird case where I don't know that anyone was really rooting for the underdogs except for people that went to those schools because people wanted to see this game. It would be sort of irrelevant to root for the underdogs. And by the way, I don't think Gina Oriema tries to shit talk. I think if the skill comes naturally <laughs> to him, he's very toolsy when it comes to that. So so, uh, you know, Notre Dame lost, loses uh, Natalie Achanwa, who is the third leading scorer. But she's really important if you ever watch Notre Dame. All the plays, not all the plays, but so many of the plays, she touches the ball on every offensive possession. The offense kind of flows through her. So we were looking at the Stanford game. Well, what's going to happen? Are they going to have, are they going to be hurt in terms of rebounding? She was the number one rebounder. Stanford was out-rebounded by Notre Dame 50-21, to 21, including Notre Dame had 19 offensive rebounds to Stanford's four. I know that game's not going to necessarily translate into Connecticut, but, I mean, I've never seen a deficiency exploited to become such a uh, such an asset in terms of you know losing a key player and what she's supposed to give you. I still think the injury makes Connecticut the favorite, but actually I was looking for uh, betting lines to see literally if they're the favorite, and this is another way that the women's game really, it would be great if they had betting lines, but Las Vegas doesn't put a line on it. Sometimes oh. they put a line on WNBA, but I haven't seen a line on the uh, women's game. One more thing about Connecticut and Stanford. They would have played if the old Big East existed, and it doesn't, so that's why you have these two undefeated teams. And I think if you want to talk about good or bad for college basketball, women's college basketball, and that gets a little annoying, I think it would have been good if they played already. Because like Houston-UCLA, like a big, huge rivalry game, we have a little bit of context to think about it, and then this could be the rematch. I mean, maybe not. Maybe the ratings wouldn't be affected, but I would have liked to have seen them play already. I think the University of Connecticut's got a problem down the road. They play in a terrible conference now for women's basketball this 
American, whatever it's called. Central Florida, AAC, Cincinnati, yeah. Houston, Memphis, Rutgers is leaving, Louisville is leaving. This is not a good setup for Connecticut. And there was a piece in your newspaper this morning about the right. Connecticut president at the men's final for glad handing and fundraising and making nice with all of the school's big donors. And she's going to fly after the men's final on Monday night. And let's be clear, which we didn't say before that we are taping this, obviously, before the men's final. She's going to fly to the women's final four. But the contrast between the men's and women's programs becomes clearer because of this vast gap in talent. The Connecticut women are going to go undefeated for a long time. They're riding a 40-plus game winning streak that could wind up challenging their 90-game winning streak, their record 90-game winning streak of a few years ago. We talk about change in the landscape of conferences. It would be really interesting if Connecticut wound up changing conferences, not just because of its men's basketball team or football team, but because of its women's basketball team. And when you talk about their record, you know, part of me thinks, like, is it boring to be that team to, like, play in a conference where, you know, and I haven't checked out their the their scores kind of in their mojo going into the tournament, but it just seems like if I'm a player on that team, and I know it sounds a little silly because they're winning so much, but... How does that prepare you for a tournament? How does that, you know, really push your team? Well, so far, it seems pretty <laughs> indicative of how they've done in the tournament. So, right, yeah. right. All right. Well, our sponsor this week is Audible, the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment. With our special offer, you could get one of Audible's more than 150,000 titles for free. Thanks to Audible's great offer for Hang Up listeners. If you're in the United States, if you've never tried Audible before, you can get a free audiobook if you sign up for a free 30-day trial. You can get that audiobook and the free 30-day trial for signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash hangup. That's audiblepodcast.com slash hangup. And let's recommend the book. Mary, you were reading a good one? Yes. Uh, the Disappearing Spoon by Sam Keen is uh, a nonfiction narrative about the history of the periodic table of elements, something we probably haven't thought of since high school chemistry. So it talks about the people, the mad scientists, the betrayal, the agony behind every element on the chart. And uh, I'm not a hardcore science person, but it's a fantastic read. And tungsten really gets its due. <laughs> so that is The Disappearing Spoon. It's available on Audible. It's written by, give me, give us a subtitle. It's a great subtitle. Uh, it's by Sam Keen. And the full title is The Disappearing Spoon and Other True Tales of Madness, Love, and the History of the World from the Periodic Table of Elements. They do get periodic table in there as I a mean, reference. I when you start talking about Einsteinium, oh my God. <laughs> That's right. Some of those gases really aren't as noble as you would think. Overrated. So again, that is audiblepodcast.com slash hangup. Go there and check out our offer. Here are some things to know about the English football team. Sorry, side. Fulham. They wear white. They are called the Whites. They play in Cavern Cottage, and they are called Cottagers. They weren't all that good, or at least uh, they weren't a top side for quite a while. If you go to their official history on the web, it has highlights like avoided relegation. Fulham's great escape began when they had a remarkable turnaround in results, prompting a stunning end-of-season revival, which saw the club beat the drop with just 14 minutes in the season. That was a few seasons ago. Now Fulham is in the same position in the premiership, the bottom three teams are relegated. They're kicked down to the, a lower division. And entering Saturday's game, Fulham was last. But they did win. It was a 2-1 victory against Aston Villa. And now they're third to last. I don't know if they will be able to avoid relegation. Maybe Andy Glockner does. Andy's National College basketball analyst, former Sports Illustrated soccer writer. And if you go to his Twitter feed, his icon is literally a Fulham crest. Andy, how are you? I'm doing fine. How are you? 
Good. Like, how did it start? Why Fulham? Of all the teams to pick, you weren't born there in West London. Well, you know, it started with a couple of U.S. guys playing over there. Uh, Carlos Bocanegra earned a living uh, at the club for a while, and then Brian McBride as well, uh, middle part of last decade. So, you know, like a lot of U.S. soccer fans, when you start to get immersed in soccer, the, the biggest thing might be the U.S. national team. You know, MLS obviously is continuing to grow, but for people of our age, the, the league didn't exist for a while as well, so the big thing to root for was our national team. When you transition to, to club soccer, you start looking for a hook, uh, and overseas I just wanted to start to see the, the U.S. guys play well, so I started watching them and their games as they were playing for Fulham, and it just evolved into caring about the club more than caring about the U.S. players' success. I will correct one thing you said, Mike Pesca. It's Craven Cottage, not Cavern Cottage. Oh, it's Craven? Right, because the cheerleaders are the Cravenettes. They are the Cravenettes. Andy, Brian McBride, Clint Dempsey, played for Fulham, scored one of the most historic goals in Fulham history. They were actually voted by fans to Fulham's all-time premiership team. And this is a team that has really supported American players. And this is a fan base that before American players were more accepted than they are now in the premiership. And there aren't that many right now playing in the premiership. But before it was generally accepted that an American can do well when it was still fun to make sport of American players coming to England, Fulham kind of was progressive. And I think that deserves our support as well, does it not? Well, they, they were lovingly called Full America for right. a while because it seemed like they had at least one guy on the roster. I, I probably was for somewhere close to eight or nine seasons in a row, maybe more than that. And then when Clint Dempsey was sold to Tottenham uh, a couple of uh, summers ago, that, that ended the, uh, the run of American players on the roster. You know, there's a lot of animosity between clubs over anywhere, but certainly in England. There are, you know, many, many clubs just in the capital in London. I think there are five or six in the, in the Premier League that are in that location, whether it's in the city or just outside of this season alone. But nobody really seems to have animosity toward Fulham. They're sort of that, you know, nice club that you pat on the head, and it's a, it's a nice little old venue that's been around for over 100 years, right on the banks of the Thames River. You know, Fulham is almost like the second club that everybody sort of likes. So I think, you know, if you asked a bunch of neutral observers not just Americans, but people over there, if they would want to see Fulham relegated, I'd imagine a lot of them would say no. They'd rather see the club stay up. But maybe that's just my bias showing. They're the Cubs of the English Premier League. Or the Seattle, <laughs> the Vancouver yeah. of the English Premier they're League. They're the Billy Joel's greatest hits of a long car ride <laughs> of the English Premier League. Yeah, they're, they're, they're the harmless team that somehow, you know, you mentioned the, the relegation escape in 2008, which was which was really remarkable, and the club this year is, is poised potentially to try to do something similar to that. The, the interesting thing is the, the matches down the stretch this season actually fall on the same exact dates they were played in 2008 also, so there's some symmetry to all of this. But in between, the club ended up in the Europa League final in 2010, went on a tremendous run with Roy Hodgson, who's now the, the national team manager for England. So it's, it's been, you know, this decade rooting for Fulham has just seen everything. It's in the almost the extreme lows and the desperation of a relegation escape uh, to the heights of, of European glory and the goal you mentioned from Clint Dempsey beating Juventus, uh, one of the world's most famous teams, a tremendous goal to win that tie in the Europa League run. And now we're back to 
you know, where we were six years ago trying to stay in the league. You know, and I think this is what makes English soccer in a way more interesting than our own leagues. Relegation is awful if you are among the relegated. Fulham's economics are just going to go to hell if they are relegated. It's built into their players' contracts that they'll take a 30% cut if the cottagers fall into the second tier. 67% of the club's revenue comes from the premiership from TV payments and other shared monies. I mean, it is just such a crazy system financially that the pathos, you know, not only the emotional impact, but the financial impact is just overwhelming in the premiership. And I think for a fan, that must be just awful to know that you're going to lose half to a third of your, a third to half of your roster, if not more, and that you're going to be, you know, consigned to playing teams that you don't really respect as a fan, even though there are plenty of names in the, in the championship that are familiar and former premiership teams. I think that's the first time I've heard the term pay cut in relation to uh, elite sports in, in years. <laughs> Just as a concept, it's like mind-blowing to think about. Wouldn't it be refreshing in the United States that if your team performed poorly, you didn't have to pay your players as much? That, that would be really Insert great. Insert Yankees joke here. Um. Right, exactly, exactly. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a very difficult situation. And you mentioned there are some names down in the in this championship that, you know, decent soccer fans would recognize. And that's because it's very, very hard to get out of that league once you drop into it. You know, it is a grind. It is a 24-team league, so you're playing a 46-match schedule, and only the first two teams get promoted automatically. Then the third through sixth-place teams end up in a playoff, and one more team goes up. Just because you are a former you know, Premier League team does not guarantee success, and for what Stefan was mentioning, the money aspect of it is huge. Your, your TV revenues get shredded when you go down there. Now, the one advantage Fulham may have is this year started a a massive new TV contract for the Premiership, including worldwide rights. I think by themselves were almost $2 billion in worldwide television fees. The the entire package is $5 billion this year. It's an enormous jump from last year. So Fulham, or whoever does get relegated this year, will be going down to the championship with a much bigger stack of cash in terms of parachute payments and what they earned from TV this year than teams even that went down last year. Maybe that will help in a bounce-back bid. Maybe some of these teams will be able to get back up on the first try. But if you don't and you get stuck in the championship, then all of that Premier League buzz wears off, and you're no longer an elite team. You are a championship-level team, drawing championship-level crowds, recruiting championship-level players. It's a very tricky situation and one that a club the size of Fulham uh, really should try to avoid at all costs. So let's for a second go back and trace. I'm trying to understand why they're so bad now. I understand in the beginning they were just, you know, the sixth best team in England and, and not everyone can be Chelsea and Arsenal. But then Mohamed Al-Fayed, uh, Dodi Fayed's father of uh, the Hotel Ritz Paris and, and Harrods Department Store, bought it, injected a lot of money into it. This is, you know, the period where you were talking about when they beat Juventus and so forth. But recently he sold it to... Shahid Khan, who owns the Jacksonville Jaguars, but he's still a rich guy, trust me, even though he owns the Jacksonville Jaguars. But even though even though Khan is this super rich guy, they've done terribly under him. Is it a money problem? I don't think it's a, a Shahid Khan problem. I think he uh, inherited, uh, my analogy has been, he bought a house that was not maintained properly by the former owner and sort of is left holding the bag now for a couple of years where uh, Al-Fayed did not put money into the club because he had put so much into it, and I think he was preparing to sell the team that he didn't want to sink more money into it out of his own pocket than he had to. 
So they sort of started with a roster that obviously did very well in 2009 and 2010, and then they didn't really follow that up with the necessary investment and then sold a couple of key players, not only Clint Dempsey, but Musa Dembele also sold to Tottenham for 15 or 16 million pounds, a very influential young central midfielder. And Fulham just never rounded out the roster properly. They patched it up with short-term solutions and loan signings and one-year deals uh, and tried to skate by, really, until Alfayette was able to sell the club. And I think Khan and his associates have recognized, and they tried to do some stuff in, in January's transfer window to fix some of the problems, but they just haven't had the club long enough to get it steered back in the right direction, put the investment in where it's necessary. I think that's a huge advantage for Holden, though. If they do go down, they obviously have a multi-billionaire owner who's willing to put his money where his investment is, and that certainly would help. Has that happened with championship clubs getting out of the championship in relatively short order because their owners are willing to invest a lot of money that they're not going to recoup from TV and gate? There there are some limitations. England has the financial fair play laws in place, but there there are ways that you can get around it in certain ways, at least for the short term. You can, it's almost like NFL salary cap stuff. You can sort of borrow for now and then, then get end up in hell later kind of thing to make it in a simplistic uh, American sport example. The first year, yes, I think you can basically say we're going to try to keep some guys on the roster that we probably can't afford given our TV revenues and hope we bounce back the first time. But if it doesn't work, then you have to concurrently be rebuilding the team from the bottom and rise up some of these youth prospects. Fulham has one of the best youth uh, development programs in the country right now. Their U28, uh, U18 and U21 teams are both excellent. They have some very good prospects if they can hold on to them if they get relegated because other teams then come and pick over the carcass. You know, they want your better players. So it'll be an interesting process if it happens, but this weekend's result at Aston Villa uh, gives them at least a little hope that they can avoid it. Well, as I'm looking at the standings table, they are ahead of uh, Cardiff City and Sunderland. One of those teams will probably play by the time this... uh, They might be behind them. So they're not in last place. But can they catch Norwich City? Can they catch West Brom? As I'm looking at this, this infuriates me. Yeah, Fulham has the most losses in the league, but West Brom has 14 draws and Fulham only has three. Fulham has two more wins than West Brom. God, I hate giving the point to a draw. I'd be a terrible soccer fan. (laughs) (laughs) See, it's funny because I actually defend draws all the time. I I wish we had ties in American sports like hockey. Like, I I don't see anything wrong. Like, sometimes the fair result is a tie. You know, I'm I'm okay with it. I I know that's not a very American thing to say, but sometimes two teams play an even match and a tie is a fair game. You're you're right. You're right. You're right. But that gets to the emotional, and that's, we, we teased it. I don't know if we asked you. So, is it hard is, or is it more exciting that even when your team is terrible, you have this massive rooting interest at the end of the year? Or is it hard having relegation uh, just staring you in the face? Yeah, it's, it's very hard because you know what the ramifications are. We've discussed that part of it already. But I think the, the underrated part of it is that when your team is in a relegation battle, it means you've been really bad all season. And, you know, this is like a, you know, watching, you mentioned the Jaguars or mentioned it, watching the Oakland Raiders. But this is not 16 weeks of watching a team be really bad. This is 38 matches of watching a team be really inept with very little hope that your team can really do anything to pull itself out of this. You know, when you look at the underlying stats for a team like Fulham, every stat basically suggests that Fulham is one of the worst teams in the league this year. There's no, there's no getting around that. Oh, my that. God, their defense now, is horrific. Yeah, soccer, it's been an awful season. There, there's no getting around it. But... You know, you also knew the schedule was going to shake out this way, where three of Fulham's most winnable home matches against Norwich, as you had mentioned, and then they also play Hull City and Crystal Palace uh, down the stretch before the season ends, all at home. 
their schedule was going to flip at some point, and if they found themselves in this position just five points back at Norwich, Norwich's last four games are against Liverpool, Manchester United, Chelsea, and Arsenal. So this match on Saturday when Norwich comes to Fulham is not only for Fulham's season, Fulham probably needs to win it to have any realistic chance to escape, but Norwich probably needs to win this game, or otherwise they're in a significant danger of not only being caught by Fulham, but maybe being caught by Sunderland as well which has three matches in hand at this point. So it should be one of those matches where it's not going to be as glorious as Arsenal-Man City or something like that, but two teams desperately fighting for their, their existence in a certain way, and both teams probably needing to win. I think it's been fascinating with the um, in the, the last year how much more interest there's been, American interest in European soccer. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, the Seattle Sounders and the Portland Timbers have a legitimate rivalry. It's a place where high-level soccer is actually has taken hold. And Seattle's kind of a weird sports town anyway because of the comings and goings there. So it really filled a void. So, you know, European soccer hasn't resonated with me as much just because I'm somewhat spoiled being from a part of the country where there's a, a good soccer scene. I think the relegation concept is kind of amazing. And there's certain things about European soccer. I think it's better to watch on TV, honestly, than football. But I think that whole idea and the race to the bottom, if you will, which is like the most inappropriate use of that term, but I think it's... um. It's fascinating because the battle is for something different. And, um, you know, how can you not root for Fulham? It's such a Charlie Brown story. And here is Wes Brom trying to yank the football away. Wait, I've just mixed sports metaphors and Charlie Brown. <laughs> Andy Glockner, who thinks with his brain about college basketball and feels with his heart about Fulham FC. Thank you, Andy. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, do not pass go because our next topic is Monopoly. The game maker Hasbro announced that they were going to introduce some what's called house rules. These are the rules that people play with casually, not a part of the game, and they were inviting fans to in- to debate the house rules on their Facebook page. Problem with Monopoly, and a lot of this has been detailed by the groundbreaking professor of board games, yes, that's a real thing, at NYU, Jeffrey Fuchs, who does this great lecture called Does Monopoly Suck? Spoiler, kind of does. But a problem with Monopoly is there's no way to push anyone out of the game. There's so much money roiling around. Most of these house rules actually exacerbate the problem, but that's okay. People love their Monopoly, and they have it close to their heart. In fact, Mary has written or is writing a book about it, and Mary, I'll go to you first and say, is the appeal of Monopoly just that Monopoly has been appealing to our parents and grandparents and no one really stops and says, this appealing game really doesn't have that much appeal? Right. I think there's a lot to it. And I think that that, um, there's been some research that indicates brands that you're introduced to as a child, you maintain a lifelong attachment to in a different way than something you're introduced to in your 20s or 30s. So I think there's a huge nostalgia component. But then the House Rules debate reminds us that most people don't play Monopoly correctly. So anytime you inject cash in the game, and it's always fun if you you play Monopoly with people who grew up in different parts of the country because they start arguing about the rules, even though every set comes with a written set of them, there's a big impulse to put more money into the game, and it, it, it makes it go longer. So when people complain about the game being so long, that's kind of their own fault to some degree. So elite players or players who even just follow the rules usually wrap up at an hour, 90 minutes tops. And it makes the game more deal-heavy, more aggressive, um, rather than just throwing a bunch of paper around. But aren't there aren't there inherent flaws with the game? I mean, game theorists and people who study this. I cited the NYU game board game professor, (laughs) 
Like, they will say that this is just not a game that is designed, you know, optimally. It's no Settlers of Catan. It's no game that, you know, has actually improved over the years after people realize that there are fundamental flaws to it. I agree. But, and I think Mary's absolutely right. The reason that Monopoly continues to sell millions of units and that Hasbro continues to throw some social media and marketing muscle behind it is that it is ingrained in our brains. We believe that Monopoly is a great game, that it is a classic because it goes back almost 100 years. I guess more than 100 years if you buy the origin theory. Right, Mary? Yes. Um, 1903. And therefore... We are going to play it because we think we're supposed to play it. Hasbro has a dilemma with these kinds of games. And and my favorite game, which I think is a far superior game because it engages more parts of your brain. It varies more from game to game. It is far more intellectual than Monopoly. Scrabble, of course. That The problem Hasbro has with oh, these I th- games... I thought for a second you were going to wow us with this game. <laughs> we had Are you kidding me? Oh, I went with Scrabble. Right. Candyland. <laughs> Um, <laughs> da, da, da. Just got to pound the gumdrop falls over and over. <laughs> so Hasbro's problem is, what do you do with them? Yes, they're chestnuts. Yes, they're going to sell X hundred thousand or million copies a year. But today, where the toy business and the game business are governed by fads, by quick hits, by generating huge sales in short periods of time and then moving on to the next item, what to do with these chestnuts is a very difficult market dilemma. And their answer has always been, eh, we'll make Boston Red Sox Scrabble and we'll make Cincinnati Monopoly and we'll sell a few thousand of each of those. And that'll continue to let the brand get its exposure, protect its trademarks and generate a little bit of revenue without having us to invest much in the way of intellectual or business capital. Right. And that's why I don't think a Settlers of Catan is going to come from Hasbro. I mean, it came from a person who was designing, I mean, the R&D component of that company. It's very much more of an entertainment company. I mean, look at what they're doing on the film side. But all this came to mind with Candy Crush and the King Digital IPO. And so this idea of there's a company that its whole success is around one game. Now, is that a beanie baby or is that one of many innovative things that's going to come out of there? You know, only time will tell. But I think that if you're the maker of Monopoly and everybody is, you know, obsessed with Angry Birds and Candy Crush and addicted to a totally different platform, that's a problem. So the industry has evolved. And when you look at how sophisticated video games are, even from Atari, as much as I love Atari, it doesn't hold a candle to the graphics and technology and storytelling and the depth that most games in a really broad sense have today. So, but the deal is that, yes, if you're going to play a board game, there are some great board games that are without flaw or at least that are really playable, but they're not trademarked by anyone. They're chess and they're backgammon and no private company is making the money on them. So this is why Hasbro has to both tart up Monopoly to have the Cincinnati Monopoly. But here I am saying, complaining about a degradation of Monopoly. Monopoly (laughs) is, you know, pre-degradated. Here I have a game board for Monopoly. It has these game facts and maybe, Mary, you could check some of the, these are the official Monopoly game facts. Did you know that Charles Darrow, an unemployed heating engineer from Germantown, Pennsylvania, brought the Monopoly game to Parker Brothers in 1935. I think you knew that, but what else can you tell so us about that? So that's very coyly worded. Yes, and the way the that that story has been told has uh, evolved quite a bit because of Ralph Onspach's lawsuit in the 70s regarding a game called Anti-Monopoly. So yes, Darrow brought the game, but what they don't tell you is that versions of kind of quote-unquote, the Monopoly game with a lowercase m had been played for at least 30 years. Uh, a woman named Lizzie McGee 
filed a patent in 1903 for a game called The Landlord's Game, which isn't one-to-one with Monopoly today, but since her after her patent was filed, the game was played extensively. It was played at Wharton. It was played at Columbia. It was played by members of Roosevelt's cabinet. So the idea that, like, poof, 1935, this game appeared is not what the historical record shows. Right, that's like Elvis brought blues to America's attention in 1954. (laughs) And Lizzie McGee, she was like a dedicated Marxist, right? She was a a left-winger. She was a follower of Henry George, so I I won't bore you with a lot of single-tax theory, but... Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, it'll be a thousand pages just on Henry George. Uh, but you'll come out of that knowing how to win the <laughs> landlord's game, man. Right, right. Well, in board games at the time were much more of a means of communication, education, and because this was before big movies and before video games. And so she was really trying to use this as an educational tool and as a form of rebellion against the monopolists of her era. So the fact that when I was at the Occupy Wall Street, um, you know, Zuccotti Park a couple years ago, the fact that Mr. Monopoly had become a symbol of capitalism, I thought was so funny because here we are 100 years later and the iconography from the game means almost exactly the opposite of what she had originally attended. Isn't that because some games get taken over by these soulless corporations like Parker Brothers and Hasbro in the history of Monopoly's ownership and the actual meaning of them, the reason that they were created, gets completely lost. Absolutely. And I'm sure you can talk about that with Scrabble a little bit, too. And just to go back to the competition point, I think the skill involved in Scrabble explains why there's like a flourishing competitive Scrabble world, Um, you know, historically, that's always been a thing. I mean, you were able to write a whole book on it. Monopoly, they do a tournament every now and then. You don't study up to be a great Monopoly player the same way you do with Scrabble or other games. And by the way, if you want to check out if Mr. Monopoly is a symbol of capitalism or perhaps uh, the people who would be in Zuccotti Park, if I gave you some identifying characteristics, a downy handlebar mustache. Is that more Zuccotti Park or a dude on Wall Street? A monocle. I think the New York Times has Trend uh, story. documented who gets the monocle. Even a rakishly adorned top hat. I think that's more Brooklyn hipster. Mr. Monopoly was a hipster. Yeah, he totally was a hipster. Yeah. I should do all my press in a monocle. I made the decision right here, right now. Monocle media presents. <laughs> right now there's a marketing executive at Hasbro going, okay, hipster monopoly. We got to get it out. <laughs> My man Jeffrey Fuchs, I mean, this guy influences me so much on Monopoly more so than, you know, anyone, any other uh, academic does. But, you know, what he says he likes to do is he just plays pure auction. So when you land on a spot, be you the uh, race car or the wheelbarrow or the shoe, when you land or the what cat that they introduce, another way of tarting up the game, introduce a new character. Anyway, when you land on a spot, usually the game rule says it's yours to buy. But this rule, which gets the cash into the game and flowing, says immediately that spot is up for auction. You ever play that version, Mary? I like the auction way of playing because uh, it's anytime you can interact more with your fellow players, I think it makes it a better game. And in Ralph's lawsuit, one of the pieces, so the auction piece of the game, one of the groups that played the game a lot were the Quakers of Atlantic City. And one of the Quaker tenets of faith is silence. So some of them took away the auction rules because it was loud. It was cacophonous. They were playing it with kids. So I, I think that for their purposes, scuttling that made sense. But I actually think today, where at least my family plays very loudly, it's fun to put it back in. The, the Quakers had never heard of the auction paddle? <laughs> Well, that, that would really make the game set. exciting, wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> that would be cool. An, uh, a monopoly with an actual auctioneer against you, sir. Against you, Baltic <laughs> Avenue. Against you, sir. For sixty dollars. And there's a passive aggressive element to that that I really like. <laughs> Do you actually play, Stefan? When was the last time you actually played Monopoly? Yeah, with my daughter, not that long ago. Uh huh. Were you the shoe with the battleship? You know, I like the iron 
I like the iron. I'm more triangle shirtwaist. The iron's shirt gone, waist. man. I, well, I've not in my set. I didn't <laughs> run out and buy a new Monopoly because right. Hasbro told me I was supposed to. I can hear the eBay searching. Yeah. He's going to load if, up on the token. If Monopoly were played online, you'd download the patch and all of a sudden your iron would be gone. And we haven't talked about the Hasbro's social media efforts here and whether we think that this is something that's worthwhile. They're posting these house rules, which I noted in the piece I wrote for Slate. Seems kind of stupid because they're house rules. You know, why integrate them into the game? They wouldn't be house rules. them, right? And who cares what someone else's opinion Exactly. Is, right? <laughs> They're your house rules. I don't care about your house rules. Yeah. Um, and Scrabble is doing the same thing now. I have another post up on, on Lexicon Valley today about this uh, Sweet 16 tournament to pick a new Scrabble word that will officially be added to the Scrabble lexicon as soon as three weeks from now when the school Scrabble championship is held. Does this smack of desperation to you, Mary, or just sort of trying a little bit too hard to be hip and engage the audience via social media. They're doing it by via Facebook, which is not the hippest way, of course, to engage in social media these days. But I give Hasbro some credit for trying to do something to draw attention to these brands. Yeah, I agree. And um, and you and others have written about, with Scrabble, some of the online games and how they've bungled some of that. So, But some of the Scrabble words and the house rules thing, I, I think that we have to remember that we're very involved with these games, uh, perhaps in a way that's unhealthy. Most people aren't. So the idea of introducing a word that might not even be in Webster's to Scrabble is going to appeal to a broad base of players in a way that will be very different than how we might find it repellent. So the house rules incorporating them, to me as somebody who would be just thrilled if people played right in the first place, it's going to be uh, a little more obscene to me than somebody who's like, oh, that seems great. Let's let's do $400 on Go. So I think it's bridging the gap between, you know, the handful of us that are really, really hardcore about this stuff and just getting people talking about a thing that's been around for so long. So you, I, I don't know. It, it does at times seem a little desperate, and I'd be happy if they changed the Darrow story in the box too, but there you have it. Are these companies smart to take their most dedicated fans for granted? I mean, I get the sense that Monopoly will survive. It's a very populous game. And if you don't have the dedicated people who do the tournaments, who cares? But it seems like Scrabble does rely on that maybe a little more mm. than Monopoly does. Uh, is it just an, an example of those people are so hardcore they're not going to leave Scrabble anyway? Well, they're not going to leave Scrabble. And the truth of the matter is that Hasbro has abandoned competitive Scrabble. It ditched supporting the National Scrabble Championship about six Six years ago, and a players organization has taken Hasbro's place in terms of supporting and organizing competitive Scrabble. It also last year decided to slash the budget for the National Scrabble Association, which had been around for 25 plus years, and take in-house the management and operation of the school Scrabble tournament and program. So there is a cost-cutting thing going on where, and, and this is sort of a legacy of Hasbro's approach to this game, which is that you know, we don't see a whole lot of remunerative benefit from spending a few hundred thousand dollars a year to support the competitive side of the game. Their goal is to sell boards and apps. And they made a conscious decision that by running a national championship doesn't really help them achieve those ends. So they've scaled back from that over the last few years. All right. Well, that was Stefan on his favorite game, Scrabble, Mary on her favorite game, Monopoly. And I didn't get to talk about my favorite game, Hawaiian Hangman, <laughs> where the body parts are 13 and the letters of the alphabet are 12, so you always win. But anyway, let's go on to After Balls. Fulham has or had a mascot, Sir Craven of Cottage, 
who was apparently pieced together from scraps of uh, aluminum foil, aluminum foil. He is just an afterthought of a knight. And on his head, instead of a crown, it looks like he has some sort of odd yellow picket fence, perhaps. He, he kind of looks like Halloween costumes I made as a kid. Paper yeah, mache. as a kid. That did not come in first through third in your local Halloween. No, some yeah. duct tape, staple gun. According yeah. to The Independent, When Sir Craven was unveiled to Fulham fans prior to a home match at the cottage, the sound of laughter emanating from 25,000 people greeted the brave knight. Sir Craven was soon packed off, presumably on his horse, and replaced with a badger. Uh, By the way, the Independent rated uh, Sir Craven as the 16th worst or downright absurd mascot. But they had the sausages from Milwaukee as somewhere like 15th. And then they also had this Carlisle United fox, who's not a bad mascot, except this fox runs around with a taxidermied fox on a, on a <laughs> stick. Wow. I think I've had nightmares yeah. where that fox has made cameos. Cannibalistic. Wow. What's the badger's name? Billy. Stephen? Billy the badger. He got sent off from a game for breakdancing in the corner of the pitch after the game had started. Of course he did. Which I kind of love. It's like, if you're going to go out, go out in flames, don't, you know, and in style. Don't break dance in the pitch. All right. What's your Sir Craven of Cottage? So yeah. I was thinking about what to do for my afterball. And in the month coming since I've come back from Sochi, there's been two things really on my mind. Board games and post-Sochi Winter Games Eastern European politics and Putin. So, of course, I thought I should talk about Risk, the board game. Of course. So it's a strategy game. You play on this map for people who haven't played it. The object is to take over the world territory by territory crushing your opponents. There's also a great Seinfeld episode um, in which Newman and Kramer play an extended version of the game. And you'll recall that there's a, there's a scene where they're playing on the subway and, you know, Kramer's giving Newman a bunch of crap for taking over the Ukraine. Oddly interesting today, considering the headlines. And a Ukrainian guy sitting next to them on the subway becomes upset and smashes the board. But you, mean, you mean an insensitive ethnic portrayal in Seinfeld? <laughs> Never happens. And what most people don't realize about Risk is, and maybe Stefan knows this, but is that it originated in France in the 50s and was actually, the credited creator is a French film director, Albert Lam- Okay, my French is non-existent, but we'll take some stabs at this. L-A-M-O-R-I-S-S-E. Sir Craven? Oh, no, that's not <laughs> Lamorice? Lamorice? Albert Lamaris, um, and he made the film The Lame Red Balloon. Morris. Exactly. We'll just we'll just Americanize it. Um, it's embarrassing because I have a French last name too. He made the film The Red Balloon, and that won the Palme d'Or. It won an Oscar for Best Screenplay in 1956. So the credited father of Risk is a cinematic badass of all things. And he continued making films through the 50s and 60s, documentaries. But there's this really tragic and strangely politically intriguing end to his story, which is that he died in a helicopter crash while filming a documentary called The Lover's Wind in Iran in 1970. And so Risk, you know, Parker Brothers, when they acquired Risk, Monopoly was still the the center of their catalog, but they put a lot of marketing juju behind it. Now there's all these other spinoff games. And one of my favorite things to do is, and it's become an online hobby, I think, for a lot of people, is when you go to Amazon and look at one-star reviews for things you think are great, so whether that's like a showerhead or Moby Dick. So I love Risk, so I took a look. And there's this whole issue that comes up that I haven't even thought of, which is it's a geography teacher's nightmare because there's this blobification of the countries on the board. So um, one user wrote, for school-aged children, the middle school is expected to be the formative stage of learning about world geography. The game interferes with the cognitive process in confusing and politically corrosive ways. So that's your nugget of risk edutainment for the day. And I just thought that people should be as 
perplexed when reading about Eastern European politics as, as I've been the last. I, I wonder. I wonder if people go to Irkutsk because of risk on vacation. <laughs> Do they visit Irkutsk on vacation? Politically corrosive. Yeah, don't take that too far. It's politically corrosive. It's destroying our children <laughs> and their sense of geography, everything about it. Well, Stefan, I'm going to take the host prerogative and uh, back cleanup. So what's your Sir Craven of Cottage this week? In 1983, Steve McKee was coming off of six years of teaching and working in Alaska, and he had an idea to spend a year going to sports events. He started with the two-man bobsled championships in Lake Placid, ended with the Super Bowl in Tampa. He went to the women's powerlifting and the outdoor speed roller skating the North American Sled Dog Championships, USFL and MLB and NBA and NASL games, the U.S. Tennis Open and the Indy 500, jousting and juggling and rodeo and water skiing. At the time, Steve wasn't a sports writer, but he had taken some journalism classes and had a friend at the Anchorage Daily News who offered to sponsor him when he went to events to get credentials. He traveled and often slept, all six foot eight of him, in a broken down van he nicknamed Jabba, which would get stolen in New York. He persuaded newspapers and magazines to run stories and cold called NPR and wound up checking in throughout the year with Bob Edwards, the host of Morning Edition. Steve McKee dropped by our studios yesterday. You may remember that Steve is traveling around the country covering major and very minor sporting events. In September, Steve says he missed the Mr. and Ms. Bodybuilding Contest, but was able to make it to the U.S. Open Tennis Championships in New York. They probably have the best hot dogs of any place I've been the entire year. No kidding. No kidding. Somehow I've never associated hot dogs with tennis. Well, I didn't either, but... uh, uh, see, one thing I've been doing this whole year is I've been keeping track of the hot dogs throughout the year. I say, I want a hot dog, and then I see what I get. I said I want a hot dog, and I got a roll with caraway seeds in it, sauerkraut with bacon bits in it, and gray poupon made with white wine mustard. You know, it was, it was easily the best hot dog. Steve found stories at every event about obsession and devotion and passion in the minutia of tiddlywinks and the subculture of synchronized swimming. People naturally opened up to this tall, bearded, goofy, enthusiastic guy. Drunks at the Kentucky Derby, the navigator on Dennis Connor's Liberty, which lost the America's Cup to Australia, good old boys who trained quail hunting dogs. Pre-cable TV saturation, pre-internet, pre-everyone knowing something about everything, Steve's travelogue storytelling is curious, unpretentious, snark-free. You can hear it in those NPR interviews. Steve didn't have a book contract when he started and was stunned when McGraw-Hill gave him one. One of the best chapters in his book, The Call of the Game, is about the New York Marathon. Steve followed an elite runner named Katie McDonald. Katie, in 1980, had won the first marathon to pay runners over the table, causing a scandal in the sport. Steve weaved a long interview with Katie with following her from borough to borough. It's a story of the times, particularly of the rise of women athletes. Katie says she started running in college around a track at 11 p.m. because it was dark and nobody could see us. That and the fact that she wanted to avoid the fate of her father, who died of a heart attack at 62. At the bottom of page 288, Steve wrote, My father had died of a heart attack when I was a senior in high school, too. He was 50 and I was 16. He died at home right after watching The Immortal Man on television. I was the only one at home and I was taking his pulse when it stopped. In his late 20s, done playing basketball, Steve, like Katie, suddenly realized I needed to work at not having a heart attack. The month before he left Alaska, Steve finished the Equinox Marathon in Fairbanks. 
It was a story that would define Steve's life. He kept running and lifting weights and pulling on a rowing machine for the next 30 years. I heard about his routines for almost 20 of them. Steve was a copy editor and my closest friend at the Wall Street Journal. He was the first editor of the paper's online daily fix column and the first sports editor of the weekend journal section and often my editor. He wrote two weeks of fantastic columns from the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City. And in 2008, he wrote a book about trying to outrun his genetic curse. It's called My Father's Heart, and it's a beautiful piece of writing. Steve did lots of beautiful writing. I saw Katie McDonald over the weekend at Steve's funeral. Last fall at age 60, Steve suffered a torn aorta. He survived a nine-hour surgery and a stroke and was recovering and preparing to write about what had happened to him when, last month, he suffered a second tear, this time accompanied by two massive strokes. He died on March 31st. On that date, 31 years ago, Steve was making his way to the Final Four in Albuquerque. His Anchorage Daily News credential failed him. He slept in the Albuquerque Rescue Mission and at an airport lounge. But he got into the games. Scalpers were selling tickets for five bucks apiece. And he saw NC State beat Houston 54-52 on Derek Wittenberg's air ball and Lorenzo Charles's dunk. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. That's all I could say when the game was over, Steve wrote. And then he climbed into Java and drove cross country to the Masters. Mike, what's your Sir Craven of Cottage? Well, Nate Jones, who's a reliever and in fact was maybe going to be the closer for the Chicago White Sox, has been injured and, the, and he's gone on the disabled list and the injury is listed as glute. Glute! Gluteus! <laughs> this is not a common injury, though it should be. The glute's a big muscle. You need it to pitch. Huge. That's why it's Maximus. Well, that's right. That's how big it is. By the way, do you know if there's a gluteus minimus? No. There is a gluteus minimus and even a gluteus medius. So you got your big middle. It's just like size of a soft drink. But anyway, I was wondering, how come no one gets glute injuries? I went back and checked the DL list for last year. Not one player on the DL with a glute. 2012, no one on the DL with a glute. In 2011, Randy Johnson underwent surgery to repair a herniated disc in his back, right? And... Johnson, this is how they say it in the paper, Johnson on the disabled list since June 11th with a tight glute. All right, so I looked up what his injury was listed as. Nope, hip injury. And that's what they do. They're too ashamed to say glute or it's a family game, so they cover it up with all this hip nonsense. There are glutes left and right that are being pulled, people, and no one's owning up to it. No one except maybe Rich Harden, who in 2010 went on the DL with a sore glute. I give all credit to Rich Harden, who is maybe used a pitcher who's like healthy seven days a year, I think. At least he owned up to his glute injury. It was a sore glute. He wasn't getting around this, the fact that he had a hurt glute. That guy was felled by his glute. In other glute news, Troy Percival also went on the 15-day disabled list. This was uh, years before, I think in 2007. Of course, it was listed as a hip injury. But, you know, further research shows that it actually was a glute injury. Here's the weird thing, and this tells you a little bit, and this is a side note, but a little a bit about the mindset of athletes. It was a freak thing that happened, this is Percival talking, it was a freak thing that happened two or three nights ago, Percival said, before Friday night's 3-1 to loss to Tampa Bay. I was warming up, and when I went to make my leg kick, my hip popped out of the socket and then popped back in, so I didn't think it was a big deal. <laughs> but the more I kept throwing, I kept losing all the strength in my leg. Yeah, yeah, Troy, I know you're a tough guy. But when the hippie goes out and the hippie comes in, call it a glute and go on the DL. And that is my message to Major League Baseball. Own up to your glutes, people. Nate Jones, you got a sore ass. It happens. I can't wait for you to quit your job and start the glute advocate, a publication the world has long needed. 
<laughs> glute advocacy is a is a uh, cause whose time has come, right? The glute monologues. I'm going to get me and Percival <laughs> and Johnson, and we'll just talk very freely about our glutes. And we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed on slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. And when you're there, leave us a comment and a rating and make the rating be a good rating, unless you hate us. Please become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Casey Butterly. Our producer is Mike Volo. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Mary Pallon, I want to thank you. You are great. And your book should be coming out when? February 2015. The Monopolists. And please, folks, remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.